Welcome to the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie Hobbs. Whoa, last name. <laughs> I know. I, I realized <laughs> last time I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> I did not mean to like uncover your anonymity oh. to like pick up the rock that you're hiding under. There's no rock. It's just me scrambling about. The rock was lifted years ago and I'm still scrambling around. Yeah. Who are we? We are three friends who meet over the internet to discuss the movies we've been watching separately and then we all join forces to discuss something we all watch together. It's like a Voltron scenario. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's only three of us, so it's more of like a VR Troopers kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> or Big Bad Beetleborgs. Big Bad Beetleborgs, yes. That show is Sorry, ridiculous. sorry. You know, I've seen two separate movies, and probably actually the best two movies of the year so far, where characters sort of form Voltron by getting on each other's shoulders and combining their powers. Just two people, uh, you know, kind of like playing chicken in a pool. Uh, and that's like how they defeat the enemy. In both RRR and in everything, everywhere, all at once. I was going to ask if one of them was Turbo Kid. No, I meant from this year. Like the two best oh, movies wow. from 2022. Yeah. Oh, good. I, I hope there's more. <laughs> we all know how much yeah. I love mech suits, but also just people stacking on each other to form a robot is perfect. Pure flesh mech suits, just skin and bone, <laughs> forming these machines. Just new ideas for Raised by Wolves, right? <laughs> oh, wow. I haven't watched season two. I, I in haven't fact, either. I, I haven't really been watching much of anything. You know, last Sunday, we had not really a party for my cat's 16th birthday. Oh. Presumed. Uh, open parentheses, observed, close parentheses. Thank you. I will pass that along to him. Well, no, because I have had him since October 2008. So, you know, in half a year, I will have had him for 14 years. But he was a full-grown cat when he came to live with me. And I, not terribly long ago, had an interaction with one of the people to whom he used to belong. Um, He belonged to a very good friend of mine. And her husband, when I met them, but she actually had the cat before with her roommate that, you know, she was living with when she met her, you know, future husband. And the roommate lives here in my redacted location. And we recently, you know, a few months ago had reason to interact. And she was like, oh, yeah, you know, Murderface is going to be 16 in April. Murderface is my cat. <laughs> um, for listeners who are are new to the program, um, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And I mentioned that to Matt, and he said that we should have a super sweet sixteen for <laughs> him. And even though you know what was really desired was just to have a pool day and an excuse to have a pool day, we still did it big. You know, we made cookies. I made like three different like cocktails by the pitcher we had sangria did you make a little cat cake or like get a fancy feast and like put a candle in it or something no none of that he doesn't he doesn't like wet food um even as a treat i was initially thinking that cats famously don't like pools but uh also cats do like being left alone for extended periods of time so exactly yeah (laughs) it was exactly the kind of party that he could not participate in as part of the celebration as people would come in and out, you know, to use the bathroom or to grab another drink or whatever. In the background, we did have playing My Super Sweet 16, uh, which was, as I'm sure we all remember, 
an MTV program from before mm-hmm. the 2008 recession in which the children of extremely rich people are allowed to have a public tantrum and meltdown over not getting very tiny things about their massive Queen of Versailles-esque parties. (laughs) Uh, Correct? So that's kind of all that I've watched recently. I'll say I finished reading the novel M31, A Family Romance by Stephen Wright. I didn't care for it. Not content-wise, but writing-wise, it reminded me a lot of Don DeLillo's White Noise, which oh, okay. Time included on its novel, uh, on its list of the best English language novels, and which I also do not like personally. I remember the descriptions just going on and on for pages of like objects and settings in that book. And I've read it in high school, and I was just like, I am not an intellectual enough person to like have the patience for this. I'm going to go ahead and, and, and admit right now that my own writing is often like that. <laughs> so I have to be careful when choosing my words. But I'll just say I did not care for white noise. In fact, I texted a friend of mine, and I was like, what are your thoughts on Don DeLillo, especially white noise? And he was like, well, I just, I just bought... Uh, one of his new, uh, more recent novels, Underworld, and he was like, "But I don't didn't care for white noise." And I was like, "Thank God, I needed to make sure this was a safe space to ch- share my thoughts about how much I disliked this novel that reminded me of it." And I also finished um, Dark Forest, which I guess actually I probably said last week, so never mind. Um, <laughs> but I've started. What is that? Death's one? End. That is the second book in the trilogy of novels that started with the three-body problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was like, it sounds fantasy-esque, and I am only reading mindless nonsense. So. Hey, whatever keeps your brain going, like whatever milks your Guernsey, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I have been up to, that, and I, I've mostly just been writing. If I can share one of my small wins, I haven't posted anything on the site in a while. And in fact, I've been not one of the reasons I haven't been really watching anything is I'm currently working on a writing project that as of today is at 50,321 words. Wow. Wow, Nice. Thank you. Thank you. You've earned your own pool party. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I, the only other thing that I've been watching lately, and I did want to mention this briefly, is Murder, She Wrote. Yes. And I won't say with whom, but they have acquired a gray market copy of the program, which is from Italy. So it's still in English. However, <laughs> each of the episodes also has a subtitle with the Italian title. And I would love to hear what y'all think the title of Murder, She Wrote is in Italian. I just hope it's giallo I was going to say, I, I, I want to say something giallo-esque. Well, you both get points. It's called La Signora in Giallo. Oh, La Signora in Giallo. Yes. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That's awesome. Because she writes like pulp yeah. murder mystery stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. what that she does sense. in her little town of Cabot Cove. But the most recent one that we watched did, in fact, have Brad Dourif in it, America's Darling Brad Dourif. Who's also 
been on Star Trek? Yeah. Voyagers. Lon Cedar. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's, it's required when we're talking about Brad Dourif. It sure is. Um, and what's really funny is that he plays like the plot of uh, the episode, which is uh, double, double boiling bubble or, you know, double the trouble or it's a reference to what the weird sisters say at the beginning of the Scottish play. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't remember exactly which part of the phrase is used, but Brad Dourif appears very far into the episode um, where you've seen all of the other guest stars appear at that point. You're like, Bill Maher, get out of here. Roddy McDowell, wow, you look great for your age, but where is Brad Dourif? And he finally appears about halfway through and he plays a witch hunter with a southern accent. So he's doing his like wise blood voice. And I was, oh, wow. For a moment, I was like, oh, oh wow, no. maybe these <laughs> takes place in like the same, <laughs> in the same continuity where. At some point after that, he became a fake witch hunter. And then I remember that he blinded himself at the end of that movie. I was like, oh, right. Maybe it was just his own special shout out to all the bloodheads out there. Yeah. All the wise junkies. Wherever they may be (laughs) and whoever they may be, uh, please do not contact us. (laughs) Yeah. If that is your favorite movie, I do not need to know about it. (laughs) I've said it before and I'll say it again. I did not enjoy hearing America's Darling Brad Dourif use the N-word during these trying times. Uh, Allie, what have you been watching? watching some things ish i don't know it's not been a whole lot i have been trying to pick back up you know kind of a weekly movie night thing with some friends and for this week's movie i happened to get in from the library a dvd copy of malignant so i finally watched it oh yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It takes a while to get to the fun part, yeah. though. You have to like really do your, like, you have to put in some work for that payoff from the third act when it becomes like an action horror comedy. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I definitely enjoyed the opening, though. It was kind of action horror comedy a little bit. In the haunted hospital? Yeah, in the haunted hospital. That's a good, like, tease of what's to yeah, come. Yeah, but... it's, it's great. Uh, I liked all the, like, weird Suspiria lighting. I liked the gross aspect once we get the gross aspect. Also, usually I'm not into like these types of effects, but I really kind of liked the like world like dripping away effect when she starts having the, the visions. It's a much better use of that gag than in um, the Edgar Wright movie from last year with the similar setup. Oh, the yeah. name's escaping me. Last Night in Soho has a very similar like break from reality switch over as this one but i thought malignant d- did it a lot better yeah i i didn't see that one but i did like it in this one i was like this movie is just silly enough that that works so well uh i also like that everything is literally in her head just <laughs> so good to me and i also watched stories we tell it's like the documentary that's like a family portrait story it was pretty interesting a lot of big emotions in that yeah there's a lot of big emotions in that you know there was a lot that i liked about it you know i liked that they had so many of these like family videos and pictures and all these archives because i think you know for a lot of us from like 
southeast Louisiana, we've lost those things in various hurricanes or, in my case, just various moves. So it's like interesting to watch this family that has all of these archives despite being like pretty dysfunctional and like disrupted by all of these like wild like secrets being kept. Um, it's this documentary that. It's Sarah Polly, right? That's her name? Yeah. Yeah, so she, this uh, Canadian director, actress, she starts out by trying to, like, get to the bottom of the story of her mother, who died, like, when she was very young. And it's told through the series of interviews and narration with her father, and her mother was, like, an actress, and left for a period of time. And you find out that the man she considers her father is not her real dad through these, like, revealed truths. And then also being interviewed are the people that knew her when she was in the theater and when she was having an affair. And also the guys that presumably could be her father. And you do find out who that is. And they have, like, kind of a interesting is it sort of like a mama mia thing yeah it is a little bit and mama mia the documentary uh i thought it was really like my main criticism was actually like literally voiced in the movie because you know she gives so much time to like all the different sides that it doesn't really have much of like a distinct like viewpoint or like point in general and you know Somebody at the end was literally like, so what is this documentary about? And I was like, you know, this is a good question. Because, you know, it's really just about, like, how she was born, <laughs> essentially. So, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was worth the watch. But, you know, it's not mind-blowingly, like, the best documentaries of all time. Did you watch uh, Circus of Books on Netflix? I did not. <laughs> it's like a... Uh... Very similar setup, except instead of, like, really bad family secrets, she just finds out that her parents ran, like, the most successful gay porn store in California <gasps> for, like, decades. Wow. And she didn't know about it. <laughs> and she's just like, how amazing. could you not have told us this? Yeah. It's like a more wholesome version of that, except she finds out that her parents were, like, selling insane amounts of gay porn. I have a <laughs> uh, friend who found stuff like that out about their own family, which was a very interesting time. I cannot tell their story, but it was a good time to find out and hear the story of the gay porn makers within their family. On the <laughs> podcast, you mean? You can't tell it on the podcast, uh, yeah. but you will share it with us later, right? Yeah, I will share okay. that story with y'all later. <laughs> uh, it's really good. That's for Swamp Flicks After Dark. Yeah, no Swamp Flicks After Dark. Sorry, y'all. Y'all are too young. I love those sorts of family secrets because none of my family drama is, like, secret. It's very loud. It's very explosive. Everybody knows my family's business. Um, and I don't help that because I'm just... I'm from the South, from a bunch of, like, dysfunctional, oversharing weirdos. So it's just in my blood and my bones... We don't have those. So it's it's always interesting to me to watch these stories and hear about my friends' stories like this and be like, wow, how do you all keep that from one another? Like, I don't even talk to some of my family and I know what's going on in their lives. It's so weird. And then the other thing I watched and I'm in love with is I watched 
all of uh, season one of Our Flag Means Death. Good show. It's so good, and it filled me with a lot of emotions, and I might have cried over a gay pirate show. It's so good. Highly recommend it. I will be just devastated if they don't get renewed for a second season. Like, that'll be one of those, like, unfairly canceled shows. Top of the list. Easy. It's been a slow journey for it to have an audience because I watched those episodes as they came out. Yeah. And it, that was like, it ended like about a month ago, if not longer. Yeah. I, you know, I really enjoyed the show when it was on the air, but I've kind of just like moved on. Yeah. And then uh, in the last few weeks, there's just been a bunch of like squeeing over it online that I'd like did not expect because it had such a quiet premiere. Yeah. So my cousin-in-law was like, have you seen this, Allie? You need this. This is the show for you. It is a gay pirate rom-com. There's a canonically non-binary character. You got to watch this. And I was like, I don't have HBO. So, you know, I uh, got the family HBO hookup, which sorry, uh, HBO, but you charge too much money for me. That's great news for this show's program. It is though. so good. Uh, y'all, <laughs> you can hold on to that. Yeah, I will forever. <laughs> Have you watched any other Taika Waititi's like television shows? Because they're all very good. I watched What We Do in the Shadows, and I that one's great. Loved it. Wellington Paranormal is also on HBO, okay. and it's kind of like a goofball version of um, X Files. Highly recommend that one. Okay. And then on Hulu, Reservation Dogs is very oh, good. Oh, yeah. Well. That was the other one I watched. Reservation Dogs. I love that one. Yeah. Yeah. So Wellington Paranormal. That's the only one I haven't watched. Uh, But yeah, no, I, I loved Our Flag Means Death. Big fan. It's my stuff. Uh, Brandon, what's been your stuff lately? <laughs> I've watched a lot of new releases. I'll try to go through them pretty quickly. The first two I could talk about together because they both surprised me in the same way. Um, I watched The Batman on HBO Max, and then I watched The Northman. Ah. Oh, wow. The new Robert Eggers movie in the theaters. The Min. I ended up writing kind of a dual piece on both of them because I expected these kind of like tough guy stories that are like very hung up on realism in both accounts. Like, uh, you know, Batman movies lately have been more and more obsessed with like grounding Batman in the real world. Like, people are still fucking apologizing for Joel Schumacher, like, decades later. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's awful. Get over your damn selves. It's okay to have fun. So I kind of went in the movie with, like, a chip on my shoulder about that. And then the Northman, like, after Eggers leaving this planet in the lighthouse uh, and, you know, the beautiful ending of The Witch, I, like, kind of want him to just sort of, like, let go of reality but he is so obsessed with like academic research and like grounding everything he does and like historical accuracy that I don't know, this like macho Viking epic wasn't really like something I was super looking forward to. Yeah, he's kind of a big nerd, but I <laughs> yeah. like his movies. <laughs> he makes good movies. It's just like the things he's interested in and are not the things I'm interested in. So like I have to be won over every time I go to the theater. And it's so it's far, so it's funny. three for three. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Because <laughs> I, before now, I was both interested in witches and lighthouses. So this is the only one that I've been like, oh, Vikings, all right. But it's got Bjork, so I'll watch it eventually. I really want to see it. So the two movies have a lot in common, just sort of on, a, on surface levels, like, the same young kid actor plays the young Bruce Wayne and plays the young viking northman <laughs> in both movies oh really yeah <laughs> and uh they both 
you know, are these like tales of like orphans who are like returning to like exact their vengeance for like their fallen family in this like crime world gone mad. Uh, the Northmen's based on the same uh, Scandinavian tale as uh, Hamlet and the Lion King. So <laughs> expect those story beats. But, you know, Batman, also another famous orphan who loves vengeance. But what really, like, won me over in both of these movies is, like, I expected them to be so logically rigid and also Mm. so macho in their, like, revenge missions. But they both have these, like, tender romances that develop over the course of the movie where, like, the two buff macho men find women who are equally pissed off and looking for vengeance and they kind of like connect with somebody for the first time in the Batman, you know, the person you would expect him to, to hook up with, the Catwoman. And then in the Northman, Anya Taylor-Joy playing another witch in an Eggers movie. Yeah. <laughs> She's using her like witch magic That's to sort of girl. like poison and subvert the same like slave trading villainous king that uh, the Northman's trying to thwart as well. You know, these are movies with, like explosions and beheadings and like really creepy uh, horror moments, but I, I found myself going, aww, at their romances in a way that I did not expect. I liked them both more than I expected to for that exact reason, I think. Especially The Northman. I think that one has like a very good romantic core to it, but I will say in both instances, uh, these are like small subplots that do not um, change the uh, anti-hero's mind about his single-minded mission for vengeance. Like, uh, the romance does not stop the violence in any way. It just makes it a little sadder that they can't break that pattern. I mean, you know, it's hard <laughs> to break out of the, the vengeance pattern. These are very stubborn men who um, insist on being love. sad. Yeah. <laughs> sad boys. Um, speaking of The Witch, I saw another movie that feels like it would not exist without The Witch's, like, cultural influence. You know, there's, like, a bunch of, like, back to basics like folktale horror that's come out since the witch premiered what like seven years ago now yeah i think y'all would both like this one i just saw called uh you won't be alone that sounds familiar like i've heard of it already uh it just premiered at sundance like a few months ago so if you heard of it it was definitely recently it's set in 19th century macedonia which I don't know that I've ever seen a movie set in that setting before so i have no <laughs> other like comparison points this witch uh, marks this young child like she's gonna steal this uh, villager's baby and make it her baby like basically raise it to take over her um, she's a wolf eateress so she's gonna raise this apprentice wolf eateress what that means is that she kills people and animals um, sort of indiscriminately and takes their innards and puts it under her skin and then becomes that thing like it's like a body hopping like shape-shifting witch the witch that steals the baby is um, doing this purely for hedonistic purposes. Like, she just wants to eat, and it's easier to kill other people if she doesn't look like Freddy Krueger. Like, if she looks like uh, an innocent animal or, like, a fellow villager, it's easier to get close to somebody and, make, and kill them. But her apprentice doesn't really have much interaction with humanity and doesn't really know what it's all about. So she uses this body-hopping power to try to fit in with other humans and just sort of like connect with people and like learn their ways. And she's awful at it. Like everyone (laughs) that she takes over their life, everyone else in the village is like, Oh, they must have like a severe concussion and doesn't know how to like act correctly anymore. We're gonna have to take care of our poor disabled brethren now. 
but so it's like this coming of age story uh, for this witch learning how to be human by like copying other people's behavior and not getting away with it. Like she's really not passing herself off. And then her like evil adoptive mother, witch is like really disappointed in her for not just killing everyone she sees. It's a really interesting movie because it's not quite horror, even though there's like this like kind of creepy imposter syndrome eeriness to it. And the, the witch that's like in charge is not fucking around. Like she's very violent. Uh, it's more just this like sort of uneasy coming of age drama, but this like supernatural twist to it for the younger witch. Yeah. It's easy to like write off things as like not horror. If it's not like explicitly like startling when it's like, this movie's about somebody eating people and switching out of like their skin. Like there's not a yeah. way to like categorize it other than that, you know? And I just say this as someone who like had to get over like, Oh, it's a horror movie. Well, I'm a big weenie, but no, now I like horror movies and it's, you know, it's a broad category. I guess it's just like so matter of fact with the violence that like, I didn't feel like it was trying to creep me out. It, it's oh, definitely yeah, gross. Yeah. Did you see that movie border? I think that's a pretty like no, good parallel I've been to watch it, about the trolls. Yeah, I think that if you're like a Fangoria reading horror bro and go into this witch movie expecting big like horror payoffs, I think it's even less of a horror movie than like Eggers is the witch. It's even less interested in in supplying that payoff, but it, it traffics in very similar atmosphere and imagery. So you're probably right; it is like horror adjacent or at least at the fringe of what the genre can be. But um, I think it requires a little more patience and like willingness to just like let it be a drama than most like horror movies would, would um, allow for. I saw a couple sci-fi movies as well. I saw one called The Pink Cloud that also premiered, I think at last year's Sundance. And it's really late to the table. Like they should have distributed this a lot sooner because it's one of those movies that was filmed before the pandemic and feels very much like lockdown life, early pandemic. So much so that the movie like apologizes at the start with this like title oh, card that's no. like, we filmed this before uh, anything happened in like early 2019. Uh, we did not mean for this to be any kind of commentary on COVID-19 lockdowns. But uh, in the pink cloud, there are these mysterious pink clouds that appear around the world. Um, and if you breathe outside air because of this, you die in 10 seconds. So everyone, no matter where you were when this phenomenon started, has to hunker down immediately and cannot go outside for, like, years. And uh, we follow this couple that was supposed to be, like, a one-night hookup, like, just kind of like a Tinder meeting um, that extends into a obligatory long-term relationship in a single apartment for years and years while these, like, pink clouds just kind of linger outside the window. I can kind of see why they apologized for the COVID-19 stuff, because, like... There's a lot of, like, very on-the-nose parallels. Like, at one point, the main lady, like, gets bored, so she learns how to roller skate, which I feel like was a very specific COVID fad. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's, like, all the, like, Zoom meetings and just all the different things like that. It, it reminded me most of, like, Vivarium, which is, like, another movie that was filmed pre-pandemic and came out after we were all stuck inside for, like, six months to two years, depending on how seriously you took things. And in that case... The passive-aggressive anti-romance of the main couple is, like, very abrasive and, like, trying to agitate you. In this case, it's more melancholic. Like, they get on each other's nerves, they fall in and out of love, and then back in love again, and then out of love again. Uh, and then 
instead of it being like this like harsh comedy about how just like broken heteronormative uh, monogamy is um, instead it's just like kind of just sad and depressive. So if a very, I'm like graded on your nerves, I think this is like more of a calm version of that same story. Uh, it just feels like it came a little too late. Cause I've seen so many movies that have that same kind of vibe. Like I just watched one called little fish. That was also from last year and a few others. But um, also, we'll probably go back in like serious lockdown again because <laughs> this is not over. So maybe it'll become relevant to my immediate surroundings again very soon. Here's to hoping that doesn't happen, but uh, it's definitely possible. It won't happen because everybody's just going to act like it doesn't have to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, they'll just go worry. outside and bring the pink air uh, yeah. and just die. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. It's not going to happen because it's going to be worse. <laughs> I guess that's the one part of the metaphor that doesn't work because it's not like people are like coming in with a lung full of the pink cloud and like coughing it inside of your house. So you have no choice but to breathe it. Uh, <laughs> the pink cloud does stay outside, which is kind of nice. That's polite. It's accommodating. And then my last one, I saw this movie called Duel, which I also think y'all would like. The Steven Spielberg one from <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say 80s, the Steven the Spielberg movie. one because I do like that one. <laughs> I did watch that for the first time for this very podcast uh, about a month or two ago, but this one is spelled D-U-A-L, uh, so it's a slightly different title, but it, it is also a pun. It is referring to duels to the death and to dual objects. This woman, played by Karen Gillan, is dying of a terminal illness, and she is... <laughs> offered the chance to have herself cloned so that her family can have a memory of her living past her death. And she just sort of obliges without really thinking about it. And um, her dual self, her like cloned self is mildly irritating because she is slightly better than her in like these like really small ways. Like her hair is slightly shinier or she wears like a size smaller dress. She's just like, slightly more accommodating to her boyfriend and her mother so that her family actually prefers the clone to like the real life messy person. And then she is informed that she has recovered from this illness that she was supposed to die from. And the government mandates that she has to kill her clone in a duel and whichever version of her survives is the one that gets to legally exist. <laughs> it's a black comedy from Riley Stearns who also did faults and the art of self-defense his comedy has a very flat, absurdist delivery. It's like a slightly sweeter, not sweeter, but like less oppressive uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. Oh, well. It's not quite as abrasive. Uh, it's more it just sounds like great, then. <laughs> funny. <laughs> Love Yorgos. It's weird because like, I feel like Yorgos Lanthimos has a audience that like tunes into his wavelength very strongly so he's a very divisive filmmaker, but there are people who like get what he's doing. And like Riley Stearns does pretty similar stuff and is probably very much inspired by Yorgos Lanthimos's art. But I feel like people don't get the humor as much. And I, I don't understand that because it almost feels more accessible to me. It's like, a, not, I don't want to say watered down, but it's a slightly more approachable version of Yorgos Lanthimos's thing, but it's still so alienating and inhuman that like people don't get the humor. Um, but I was laughing my ass off throughout this movie. It's a very funny black comedy. And if it's about anything in particular, it's about like uh, self-improvement and how that whole industry is like bullshit. 
Like, uh, <laughs> she tries to improve herself so much through all these different, like, commodities that you buy, like, you know, going to the gym or, like, changing up your wardrobe or getting a new apartment. Like, really, like, trying to, like, become a better version of herself so she can conquer this clone. And it's all just, like, nothing. <laughs> like, it's all just, like, empty. Um, and, and the movie ends up being kind of this, like, satire about, like, how self-help and self-care are um, just marketing tools that don't mean anything. And, you know, we're all just kind of, like, stuck in our ways and with no room for improvement. Uh, but it's a lot funnier than that sounds, because that's pretty bleak. ask you guys something what turns you on i mean what really does it for you is it a great body is it a nice smile is it beautiful legs well what turns on a serial killer is the suffering and death of another human being for our episode this week we are talking about the 1995 american psychological thriller copycat starring sigourney weaver Holly Hunter, and third build is Harry Connick Jr. for some reason. But really, the you know third most relevant character is played by Dermot Mulroney. Uh, it's a movie that I saw when I was pretty young. It was on TV, and my mom and I watched it, and we really enjoyed it. And it's just been kind of stuck in the back of my mind ever since. It lives in that same sort of place as, you know, Sneakers. And other like really great movies of like the early to mid 90s that they just don't really make anymore. And upon rewatch, I found this one fascinating because it sort of is part of the meta trend of the 90s where everything got really meta for a while following both Wes Craven's New Nightmare and Scream, continuing through the other horror movies. But this one, while not technically a horror movie, is very similar in many ways to a slasher. Sigourney Weaver plays a criminal psychologist named Helen Hudson, uh, not to be confused with Holly Hunter, who was in this movie, which seems like a really <laughs> big mistake, I think. Maybe it's another meta joke. They should have changed that character's name, but I, <laughs> I'll, I'll just say that. Um, she is attacked by a... Three named serial killer, Daryl Lee Cullum, played by Harry Connick Jr., who was previously put away based on evidence that she provided, but like Ted Bundy, actually escaped from custody. So he, in the sort of very opening of this film, finds her at this lecture and tries to kill her and is unsuccessful, but does leave her uh, severely agoraphobic as a result. So she seals herself inside of her really nice expensive like oh, <laughs> very so nice. technological apartment yeah and from there she just kind of lives her life until uh she sort of comes into contact with holly hunter who is a detective on a serial killing case um and is partnered with dermot moroni in san francisco and uh sort of as the backdrop of it it's been 25 years since the summer of love you know, set in 94, released in 95. It's been, you know, 25 years since San Francisco was home of the Summer of Love movement in the in 1969, which forms part of the backdrop. 
before I really kind of get into it, what did y'all think? I also got some like 90s cable television vibes. Coincidentally, Hulu just re-added ads into their movies unless you fork out even more money. So uh, I kind of got that like authentic cable TV experience where like <laughs> every 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes there's an advertisement in the middle of my like horrific R-rated thriller. It's just kind of nice uh, and cozy in a way that it would it would normally annoy me, but I felt right in this case. In a Tubi way, right? Exactly. And this movie was on Tubi until recently. It graduated to Hulu uh, <laughs> this month. I thought it was very interesting as a holdout for a very specific kind of thriller post Silence of the Lambs. Which it clearly takes influence from. Yeah, because like Holly Hunter is definitely the Agent Sterling role. And um, people keep pointing out how small she is. <laughs> they call her like the wee detective in the movie. Yeah. Um, and she has that kind of same like tiny sweet voice. In like this like grisly job she has like hunting down a serial killer. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just because of all the Holly Hunter Cohen brothers collaborations that I've seen, or my love for the movie Strange Weather, which also stars Holly Hunter. But in my mind, she has a southern accent in this movie. <laughs> Even if she doesn't actually. It's almost there. I can it's, hear it too. It's, yeah, it's almost there. It's that southern honey kind of sweetening what she says how many times has she played a cop is my question because like raising arizona and then this and then yeah i feel like there's another one probably and then um in the hannibal lecter role we have both harry connick jr in jail coaching serial killers on how to like keep his art going on beyond his like arrest and then also sigourney weaver is also kind of doing a hannibal lecter thing because she's like the expert on serial killers it's like the will graham sort of thing if you read the books which i have not but i know y'all have so i thought i thought that was an interesting base for it uh just like genre wise and then it does enough to be its own thing beyond that like you were saying it has that 90s meta thing with like basically the killer is performing the greatest hits of like famous serial killers throughout history and then also more attuned to my taste there's a lot of like mid '90s evil internet stuff with like oh, these like cryptic emails and like I knew you were gonna love it. <laughs> oh, haunted flash animations and uh, just great stuff. Oh god! Yeah. Oh, it contained a virus in the AVI okay. file. Yes. <laughs> okay, I watched this with Thomas, who's a computer programmer and was in the '90s, and is just like, I was like, Thomas, you want to tell me how many things are wrong with this? He's like. It's not even reality. <laughs> He's like, this isn't how anything works. There's nothing to say wrong because it's just not even. The best internet movies like use the audience's complete bafflement with how the internet works as an excuse to just do whatever Every, online. Yeah. And it's just like this like free fantasy space. Um, and this movie, I think, effectively yeah. does that like very creepily. And I feel like he, he appreciated that as well because it's better to have fantasy internet than bad internet yeah this is the same year as the net and i think this this one even takes more liberties with like how the internet can be used than the <laughs> net does i don't understand i thought everything in this movie was extremely realistic <laughs> <laughs> yeah there is a very meta quality to it i was gonna bring up of course previous um horses that i've beaten to death like the hannibal series which i watched all of those movies last year and we talked about them and Scream, which I recently rewatched within the past like six weeks, all five of those. And it has elements of all of that. The thing that people always forget about Silence of the Lambs 
is how little of it Anthony Hopkins appears in. Yeah. Like Hannibal Lecter is actually a very minor, uh, he's a major part, but has a very, has a major effect, I should say. But it's actually a pretty small amount of screen time. It's something like 12 or 13 minutes. And it does sort of feel like they are trying to recapture that in this movie. Because when I told my mom that I was watching Copycat, she didn't quite remember. I was like, you know, it's Sigourney Weaver and uh, Holly Hunter. And she said, oh, and that musician, (laughs) Harry Connick Jr. I was like, yeah, but he is a very minor part of this movie. He has He's active at the beginning, but other than that, Everything else is completely behind the scenes, and in fact, but he makes you almost feel feels tacked so on in gross. certain ways. Oh, he's horrifying! Oh, he sure does. He calls panties squirrel covers, which I, will haunt me. For I the rest was of gonna my life. say that. Just, <laughs> I was like, oh no. <laughs> also, let's let Allie do a random aside for a second. The guy who plays uh, Nico Nikolai, whatever, yeah, Will Patton. Did y'all know that he does really great audiobook work? Because I saw he was I in this, not. and I was like, oh, the audiobook guy! So yeah, shout out to him for reading both Killers of the Flower Moon and The Raven Cycle, two completely different genres and types of books. As long as we're on casting, did anyone clock the Pine Saw lady working at the detective station? Yes! Yes, <laughs> no, I did! I see her. I did. Her I and like, her fancy ankle. Pine Saw lady? Yeah, it is. She's just doing paperwork and like has like three lines. And she's like so nice to everybody. She's just so yeah. helpful. Yeah. The one nice cop. I noted a lot of like 90s fashion in this and was in awe. I was like, yes. And realized that like, the only person, like, I mean, you know, there's been a few others, but somebody who looks really good in 90s fashion is Sigourney Weaver. And I don't know how she does oh, it. Oh, she sure does. Rocking that red Hillary suit. Yeah. Just like, how do you do it, girl? There are shoulder pads in this movie that should be a crime against mankind. <laughs> but somehow Sigourney Weaver is just like rocking it. Oh my gosh. Magic. I wish. I think, I, I think I'm in the too small category like i think i would just look like i mean she's shorter than i am but i think i would just look like scully in her like (laughs) oversized baggy like (laughs) jackets trying to do the fbi thing but still like running around in this suit that's slightly too big if there's one thing they should have done with the casting and the costuming that they didn't no offense to Dermot Mulroney, who's very cute as the hot cop. Yeah. But uh, they should have um, cast Harry Connick in dual roles um, and had him oh. play the hot cop and the um, southern creep because he's under so much like makeup and like just grime that yeah. uh, he could have played two different people and gotten away with it. <laughs> the hmm. performance is ridiculous enough yeah. to call for that kind of theatric, I think. Also... I think another thing I noticed is, and since y'all have been picking up your your slack in anime watching, the villain, the main serial killer of this, the Peter copycat, Foley. yeah, he has these anime villain glasses going on. He the sure whole does. Time, and that's in the poster too. Yeah, and then he puts on this lab coat, and I had to look it up because I was like okay, because he looks like a very, very specific Sailor Moon villain <laughs> when he puts on that lab coat. And I had to look it up. And the Sailor Moon episodes with him, with Dr. Tomoe in Sailor Moon S, that 
episode premiered before this movie. <laughs> so I want to believe, I want to believe that the people who made these movies, they were big Sailor Moon fans. The costume department, I feel like, was into Sailor Moon. I want to believe that. That's a place where a big nerd would be hanging out. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I would say his glasses, too, like, help with the internet creepiness. Like, yes. just reflecting that cold computer screen, sort of erasing his humanity because you can't see his, like, eyes. That worked very well. I mean, some of the internet stuff is, like, genuinely chilling, as ridiculous oh, as it yeah. is. Like, him looking at the internet late at night alone in his little basement and then going up to begrudgingly say goodnight to his wife in bed and then going back to his internet chamber and like having a, you know, abducted teenager or whatever that he's like torturing on the like table. Yeah. Yeah. Just that sort of like um, theorizing about what all these like basement creeps are doing with their internet time. I don't know. Still creepy today, even though that was like yeah. so long ago. What are you doing alone in there all night? Well, you know, I think that's all of us. That's been all of us in quarantine. <laughs> We're all creepy anime villains. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dermot Mulroney does look great in this movie. Oh, he's very cute. Yeah. Everybody's always talking about how cute he is. I was like, oh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the last time I saw this, I was a child, so I had no idea. <laughs> There's a lot of catty back and forth between the two women. They're kind of like fighting over him. <laughs> so he kind of has to get killed so that they can like move on in their relationship. Well, there's also all that caddy back and forth between <laughs> between him and uh, Nicoletti. Yeah. About Holly Hunter, also. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of caddy cattiness. A copy cattiness. <laughs> there's a lot copy cattiness. <laughs> uh, it makes you wonder if that was also <laughs> intentional. And the other copycat thing is, you know, talking about the summer of love, like the cycle of culture, like repeating itself. Also, I feel like is a theme this movie like wanted to make deeper, but didn't because we have this copycat killer going through these eras and then we have the city that's just like going back to copy this thing that already happened. And I just I feel like this, the movie wanted to make a bigger deal of that theme than it did. I don't know. Yeah, in the, in its way, it is kind of like not nostalgic, but not not nostalgic either right it's almost like, like anti-nostalgia even though because you know we've got this yes. villain literally using nostalgia like as a weapon yeah you want to bring back the 60s and 70s you have to deal with the worst parts of that at the same time i find it kind of interesting like trying to figure out what it's doing there too because like i guess in the 90s it would have been a very like tabloid fame kind of thing where like it's warning against celebrating or at least having, like, a public fascination in, like, Grizzly murders. Yeah. But, like, that's another thing that's, like, aged really well for the movie is that, like, right now there's yeah. such an industry for, like, true crime podcasts. And, like, yeah. people have, like, Jeffrey Dahmer as my boyfriend oh. collages and stuff that they make. Um, and it's it's very in poor taste and, like, upsetting. But yeah, the movie's already kind of doing that in the 90s. If you were to make a remake of copycat like set in the present day instead of just sort of establishing that the investigators have to deal with like false confessions and people phoning in false tips yeah. instead it would be like them fielding calls from all of these like armchair podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. true crime <laughs> detectives did either of you catch only murders in the building no 
I didn't watch that. Okay, because it's kind of like that. It's about these like true crime podcast junkies that then make their own true crime podcast because there was somebody killed in the building in which they all live. Interesting. Okay. It was also part of the um, recent sci-fi channel remake of Slumber Party Massacre, which was better than it had any right to be, but also kind of satirizing that obsession with like famous kills from the past and then having to like actually deal with those kills once they're brought back. Yeah. (laughs) Not as fun as it sounds. There's even that line though when uh, Holly Hunter's character is talking to like her boss and he was like, I worked a serial killer case and she was like, The Zodiac? Like, we've already got that like thing established of like people looking back at these famous crimes and then, you know, the sixties. Can we read from this text? Because the Zodiac killer was I want to say never caught, but I think we actually do know who the person was now. Oh, Um, do we? It's just that they've been dead for a long time. Well, yeah, they've been dead. Okay, I didn't know if we we I didn't know Ted Cruz died. Yeah. No, Um. uh, he's still tweeting. (laughs) Oh, my God. Did you see this message? He's openly sending a horny thirst post to Elon Musk. (laughs) Um, So the Zodiac killings were at that time still unsolved, and her boss does talk about how he was involved in them. Is there something to the fact that it's clear that, like, MJ is the only woman on this, like, police force? Are we to say that maybe the text is saying something about, like, the need for involvement of women in murder investigations? I thought it 100% was. Okay, Especially because, like, at the end, the people who take them down are two ladies who have been, like, ladies in the world of the 90s. And, of course, being the 90s when things like this were being brought up, like, violence against women and, like stalking and stuff you know it shows these two ladies utilizing the skills that have been ingrained in women of all ages of at all times you know the self-defense tricks and like at the end they have to be resourceful with whatever's on hand and yeah i just i definitely got that vibe that was like women are good at this it also really milks that um elevator shot from silence of the lambs by putting Holly Hunter next to the tallest motherfuckers in the police station that it possibly can to be like, she is the only woman here. Woman small, man big. Uh, (laughs) As often visually as it can. Yeah. Did you recognize this killer? The actor? Yes. I did not. What if I told you he's in a movie that I know you love? I mean, you have me on the hook. What if I told you he's in a, your favorite Argento movie? Oh, wow. He Why is the is boyfriend. He <laughs> He's the boyfriend in opera. I mean, the, he has uh, the credibility to be in a movie like this. I need um, a whole like shock jock morning DJ sound effect board over here. Or like I have our Star Trek <laughs> bell. I need like a Argento bike horn and like a uh, X-Files slide whistle. <laughs> oh, and you could do like the, you could do like a, you know that sound? Well, maybe you don't because you haven't watched it in so long. But they have at the beginning of every scream, there's that same sound effect as the title comes up. And you could use that for our scream references. Can you imitate it with your mouth? Uh, what? <laughs> Was that a duck? <laughs> I should. When you asked if if I could imitate it with my mouth, I should have said no. No. <laughs> <laughs> a hard no. <laughs> but, you know, and anytime we bring up uh, any Hannibal Lecter media, we could play like the uh, 
Anthony Hopkins <laughs> noise. <laughs> yeah. Everybody do their best. Is that good podcasting or awful podcasting? <laughs> I don't know. It's a thin line. Well, the whole thing about podcasting, at least as far as I understand, is that it's supposed to feel like you're hanging out. Sometimes it's really awkward. If that is what you're going for, this is what hanging out with me is like. So condolences <laughs> to my friends. Uh, bring it back, though, to the, the, the gender dynamic thing. Like, I'm thinking I'm mulling over what you're saying more and more about the like difference between the women and the men in the police station. And like the movie does open with a lecture specifically that makes white men in the oh, tw- yeah. in their 20s and 30s. That part was like, puts them on pretty blast. great. <laughs> I was like, I love that. Please do this to Gorney Weaver everywhere all the time. She's like giving this lecture to this like criminology department at a university. And she makes every white straight man in their 20s and 30s like stand up and have like a spotlight shown on them. And is like, these are the people most likely to stalk and kill you. Uh, <laughs> and they're very uncomfortable in that spotlight. So the movie like really does open with that like gender critique. One of the other elements of that is you can go back and rewatch it now, but the killer, Peter Foley, is in that crowd. And in fact, his photo flashes on that screen. Yes. Because he, he had audio of the lecture that he played yeah. over the... yeah. No, I mean, like, you, the audience member, can see him there. Like, he stands as part of that group, and as sort of the camera goes across and, you know, flashes images of people in the crowd and then sort of mixes in, uh, you know, pictures of David Berkowitz and, and other serial killers at that same time, he appears in that, like, video track that's playing behind her. And then he, like, really fucks with her by uh, by numbering his... um murders in sequence to like where Dahmer and Gacy and the hillside strangler all appear in a lecture. Oh my god, like the murder by numbers thing. There are a lot of moments in this movie that like I couldn't tell if something was a dream or um, just non-diegetic and then it would always fake me out. Like I thought the opening was like her having like a recurring nightmare about something that happened in the past because it's so over stylized and then it just turns out to have been just a, a normal prologue. And then there's that scene where they play the police's murder by numbers, um, where she's explaining like serial killer like mentality. <laughs> yes. And then it turns out every cop in the room is just listening to murder by numbers yeah. and they just cut <laughs> yes. the lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird moment. It is a That's weird, a weird moment. thing that happens in this movie. The commissioner comes in and sees this small woman talking about the police and is just like you got to stop this. Why didn't they direct me to go wherever records are sold to go pick up Synchronicity on CD? <laughs> I felt like there was a really extended ad for that police track. Yeah. If Daryl Lee Cullum is supposed to be like the sort of gross answer to the refinement of uh, Hopkins's lector in Silence of the Lambs, are there other like mirrors in this that we want to point out other than the ones we've already talked about? I think similar to what I was just talking about being faked out by the movie, I might be conflating this with a scene in, in Speed, and I apologize. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> isn't there a scene in like Silence of the Lambs where they like raid the wrong house? Yes. yes. I was thinking about that during the scene where they raid the serial killer's house and this, and it explodes. Yeah. Uh, in Silence of the Lambs, it's a really great match cut where mm-hmm. you see the, uh, and this is this is one of Demi's like great things that he does as a director where it's like cross-cutting between 
Buffalo Bill in his lair and, you know, going to answer the knock at the door uh, with the apparent like SWAT teams gathering at what they believe to be his house. But when he goes to the door, it's just Clarice. And that's what sets up that final thing where there's the night vision and his basement and everything. It's interesting because I was also thinking about how in both of the Red Dragon and Silence of the Lamb stories, although my point of you know reference for the Red Dragon story is usually Manhunter, it's that we don't spend a lot of time with the killer. And it's interesting because it's almost like the reflection in the glasses sort of thing is part of an attempt to hide the killer's identity. But that identity ends up not being important and it doesn't last for very long. But even once we know who he is, we only learn sort of about his life by implications, right? Presumably his wife is maybe bedbound. Uh, maybe she's just needy. And it's interesting because serial killers rarely do have like relationships like that. And we see that in the other Hannibal media that we're talking about because those also i mean they're not real but they reflect a certain level of like investigation and and research into how serial killers often function but in this we see his sort of work life briefly and we see his home life briefly but we don't know him the same way that we know francis dollarhide and manhunter where there's this whole separate plot about Francis Dollarhide and having this romance with the the lady who can't see. And we we know less about him than we know about Buffalo Bill because we at least know something about what Buffalo Bill wants. So even though this is a movie that like is cribbing from that, we don't really even know what Peter Foley's goals are. Well, he says he's going to be famous and the best known serial killer and there's going to be all these books about him. Oh my god, it is Scream. You're right. <laughs> it's the same it's the same <laughs> it's the same motivation as Scream. And okay, you're right. I I had forgotten that bit of dialogue. Thank you, Allie. You're welcome cuz I really liked the climax and like basically Sigourney Weaver making fun of him because I think that's my favorite thing about this movie is how many times Sigourney Weaver makes fun of men. Yeah. I yeah. could watch her do that for an hour and a half. I also <laughs> love her and her like assistant being like, ooh, yeah, girl. It reminded me a lot of the Diet Coke commercials from the 90s where all the women in the office would gather to watch the the hunky construction worker. They're like, oh, girls, it's almost 3 o'clock. Time for our Diet Coke break. <laughs> Jack Hammerman is going to take his shirt off. I liked how in this movie I was like, wow, the gay roommate survives and lives like a happy life in San Francisco. How, like, progressive. No, he doesn't. Towards the end, I'm like, nope. (laughs) I was like living naively uh, through the first like three quarters. I was like, oh, wait, here it is. (laughs) Uh, Admittedly, though, admittedly, it's not just a barrier gaze moment. Like, it is because it's specifically a Jeffrey Dahmer killing. Yeah. When it got to Dahmer, I was like, no. Because I kind of figured it would be one of the people that she knew. Yeah. But it is kind of funny, like, as strict as the serial killer copycat is that like leaves him open for nerd freakouts, which is what saves the day. Like uh, Ali was just saying, like she's just making fun of his attention to detail and his like nerdiness about 
being pedantic about how the kills are pulled off. So she like saves herself and saves Holly Hunter by like just slightly mussing up the details. So he has to like, go obsessively fix it. Um, yeah. <laughs> loosen up nerds. You can get away with a lot more if you do. Don't tell them that. I don't want that to be the moral of the story. <laughs> That's not the lesson we're going to take from this. How do we feel like the uh, bathroom moment where Harry Connick Jr. gets access to the ladies room by wearing women's shoes under the stall? Oh, if anything yeah, didn't like yeah. age well, like politically, like mm. that's the one thing that like is painted in a different light now than it would have been when they made it even. Cause like people have politicized trans women's access to bathrooms. So sternly since then, I'll say I didn't read it that way. I wouldn't have thought to read it that way if you hadn't said something, but that doesn't mean it's not there. It crossed my mind is all I'm saying. No shot of him wearing the shoes though, at least yeah. it's, it's very separate from his personality. Yeah. Where did he keep those? <laughs> Sorry. I should, <laughs> this shouldn't be the plot hole that I, I dig into. Where did he keep well, the shoes? Well, he, he just took them off and then attacked her barefoot. Oh, no, I mean, like, when he brought them into the building. Maybe he killed another woman in the bathroom oh, and took her shoes. Yeah. yeah. Really lo- long roundabout way to get away with something. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's why I was like, where where did he bring them in? How? Like I said, that whole opening just felt like a dream. It was just so heightened. I didn't expect the movie to be so over-stylized, like... I don't know if we really mentioned Sigourney Weaver's agoraphobia in, in the movie at all, but like there's all those scenes where she tries to leave her apartment oh, and then the camera yeah. like spins round and round and round. It's um, a silly effect, but at the same time, I'm like, oh yeah, the struggle. That struggle is awful. I think it's great. The leaving the house struggle when you're an agoraphobe. That's, that's not fun. Yeah, it definitely does sort of effectively capture the difficulty that she has in leaving. And I think it's a really like great and interesting narrative device to keep her in the space with the killer where like she, she actually can't leave. Yeah. She has to choose like, do I want to be in here with a murderer or live? Which notably has been um, recreated in two recent Yeah. Films. One of which I watched. Yeah. Woman in the window, which uh, someone accused of plagiarizing this movie, which, okay. I, I don't think they're that similar. And then also um, Zoe Kravitz in Kimmy, uh, also an agoraphobe that has to like get over that to leave her apartment mid-pandemic. Oh, that's right. That's why I was interested in that one. It's very good. Definitely reminded of Copycat while watching it. Is it a copycat of Copycat? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> As someone who occasionally suffers from agoraphobia, I like watched that scene with the hallway and I was like, oh, that doesn't seem that bad. It's enclosed. And then it did the like dolly zoom. To all the way back the hallway, and I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> nope." I understand. I feel like these kind of like middle of the road, like for normies, wide releases like this don't have those kind of like stylistic touches anymore. Like they're like kind of afraid of like abandoning their audience or getting mocked on Twitter or something. Like this movie took like some like stylistic chances that you wouldn't expect from like a journeyman director for like a wide audience. Yeah, it's interesting. There's not a lot else that has been directed by this particular director, John Emile, that would make you think, oh, he's a person who, you know what you're getting when you get with a certain director, but this guy's sort of uh, CV isn't very telling about what he 
can do. But we used to have movies like this. Like, yeah, you know, I was going to say, this yeah. used to be movies the movie. for adults. <laughs> yeah, when I, when I said they don't make them, like, you know, this is the kind of movie they don't really make anymore. I'm, I'm being very serious. Like, it's, Yeah, I agree. We have crime thrillers and we have, like, sort of technophobe thrillers and techno thrillers and everything. But this is like a, you know, every person in this movie is a star. Everybody on this is A-list, in my opinion. We don't really have that anymore. You mostly have like one expensive A-list actor who's just there for like the money and they only have them for two days and then everything else is shot around them. I guess the closest thing to, th- I-, I guess I'm saying we don't have this anymore, but we did have Knives Out, which yeah. also played with style. But, you know, it's been a couple of years now. It's There's not a wave of them like there used to be. And this even kind of feels like the end of an era in some ways. Like it is so post Silence of the Lambs that you can't escape that comparison. But it came out the same year as Seven, which feels like it's from a whole different era. And I don't know, yeah. it kind of feels like the future for better or for worse. Just that sort of like oversaturated fluorescent lit style that Fincher does visually in that movie. Um, just brought in this like sicklier, grimier era of like serial killer stuff, kind of bled into the, like the torture porn era. Um, and this feels like it's from a whole earlier thing. Um, and it might have been like one of the last gasps of that style of filmmaking. I'm saying with no evidence of like, I've like, looked at like, uh, you know, thrillers on its budget level, but it, it feels like Seven is like ushering in a new, grimier thing than what this is doing. No, absolutely. I don't think it was an improvement. I kind of, I kind of prefer this version of it. I prefer this and the net to seven, and it's not just the computers. I want to point out that we have a couple of times briefly talked about the Hulu Bloomhouse series Into the Dark, and in fact, one of those episodes, the New Year's episode from the first season, ended up being on my top uh, films of the year list uh, that year. The very second episode of that show, which is a Thanksgiving-themed one, also deals with a character experiencing agoraphobia. Uh, She's in a house with her father, and in fact, there's some stylistic choices about how they choose to visually evoke that feeling of being unable to go outside in that same episode. And I remembered watching it and thinking at the time that it was sort of like taking some ideas from copycat apparently according to uh, wikipedia this particular episode was fairly well received i did not care for it much at the time but the agoraphobic character in that one is a teenage girl and i just looked it up to reference it and her father that she's trapped in the house with is dermot mulroney what oh so maybe there's something there um, if you liked this, maybe you'll like that episode. It's called Flesh and Blood, 93 Minutes, still on Hulu as far as I know. It's like the criminals were leaving clues because they wanted to be caught. <laughs> 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 well, I greatly enjoyed this. I thought this was a great like return to a style of film that you kind of forget to seek out because it's not from a famous director. It doesn't have... Like an award-winning performance in it. Kind of like what you were saying with like sneakers and I was bringing up the net. Like, I guess if you grew up with these in the 90s, like they have a nostalgic place in your heart. But if you missed them, they're just kind of out there. And you don't know which ones to like single out. So I I really appreciated this um, inclusion on the podcast because, you know, 
I'm always on the hunt for spooky analog internet era vibes, and uh, this one delivers that in spades. Good stuff. Yeah, I, I'm only going to echo that I also really enjoyed this. Yeah, even afterwards, like when it was done, I was like, they just don't make movies like this anymore. So I'm glad I'm not the only one that uh, got those feels. And in some ways, like, because this form was so standardized and, like we said, like more popular, for some reason, I think in some ways it kind of makes me, like, it's kind of, like, comfortable because we did have so many of these yeah. that it's just like, and like you said, like, catching it on TV I was like, why do I feel comforted? I shouldn't feel comforted right now. Yeah, the violence is gnarly. It's it's an upsetting movie. It's, yeah, <laughs> but it's but you're exactly right. Upsetting, but like you still get that like, oh man, I'm on the couch watching this movie that's on TV. It's four in the afternoon. That sort of feeling. It's a cozy throat hold. Yeah. <laughs> well, next week on the show, we're gonna talk about concert films. James wanted to watch this concert movie on Criterion Channel of Led Zeppelin called The Song Remains the Same. I have no interest in Led Zeppelin whatsoever. <laughs> so, I don't know how that's going to go, but um, I think he was more interested in the movie than in the band. Um, but I, I can't attest to why because I haven't seen it yet. So we all picked four different concert films, and I have no idea how it's going to go because the bands that we we're talking about are very different from each other. From Led Zeppelin to Depeche Mode. I think that's the full span. And in the meantime, check out SwampFlix.com. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, I have been reviewing a lot of movies lately. I kind of got backed up for a minute there between seeing too much stuff over Easter weekend and being like knocked off my feet by a gout flare up. I watched a lot of new releases oh, no. in a few days. So I, uh, I did a little quick takes, just roundup of a bunch of movies I watched over the week. And then I also kind of doubled up on The Northman and on Batman in, in a single review as well. I'm trying to clear out the backlog. Doing a lot of spring cleaning lately. Uh, so check out the blog for kind of quick takes and stuff. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Once that you've decided on a killing First you make a stone of your heart And if you find that your hands are still willing you can turn a mer-